musical linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Now, if you're new here to the salon, I probably should explain that there are two main tracks for this podcast. Let's call them the Salon Classic and the New Salon, and, <laughs> well, sort of in recognition of the mess that Coca-Cola made with their changeover to a new flavor years ago. And uh, I'm really hoping that the same thing doesn't happen here. <laughs> you know, uh, one night, actually, I had dinner with the uh, man who was the president of the Coke company uh, back at that time. And I asked him how the uh, blowback was from that decision. And uh, he had a lot of stories. But my favorite one was about a letter that made its way unopened to the executive offices of Coke. And it was addressed to the idiot who runs the Coke company. <laughs> and he told me that after his secretary gave it to him, he took it across the hall and gave it to the chairman of the board uh, and said that, well, it must be for you. <laughs> well, since I'm the only one here, I guess that I'll have to take the blame for the new system in case it goes bad. But hey, uh, you know, it really shouldn't be that big a deal. What I've begun doing is to play new programs that fit the classic Salon track and publishing them first on my supporters' private RSS feeds on Patreon. And then, uh, three months later, the very same programs will appear here on the classic RSS feeds. So if you think about it for just a minute, the fact that a 1989 Terrence McKenna talk reaches you three months after a few other people heard it first, uh, well, I don't see how that should cause you too much stress in your life. So uh, today, uh, the reason, however, that I'm calling this a Salon 2 podcast and releasing it immediately on the classic Salon feeds in addition to the Patreon feed is because the Salon 2 track is here for you and our other fellow Saloners to contribute to. And uh, so far, we've had about 50 podcasts on this track, but almost all of them were created by Lex Pelger, who now has his own podcast that's uh, titled Psychedelics Today, and you can easily find it at www.psychedelicstoday.com slash podcast. And uh, soon, I hope that uh, I'll be able to begin podcasting a series of programs here on the Salon 2 channel that will uh, feature quite a few other fellow Saloners. And today, however, I'm going to play a recording from last Monday night's live salon. As you know, uh, every Monday evening I host a live version of this salon for my supporters on Patreon.com. And uh, from time to time, we have guests who stop by and chat with us. Well, last Monday evening, our guest was Richie Ogilnick, who spoke with us about his work with the African plant Iboga. Well, rather than have me do a proper introduction of Richie, I think that maybe you can better understand his story as he unfolds it himself here in our conversation. Now, if you pause for a moment after you listen to Richie's story and then reflect on it a bit, well, I think that you're going to see how unlikely it is that he became somebody who I think of as the Johnny Appleseed of Ibogaine. And I mean that in the most positive way. You know, years ago, I listened to my friend Myron Stoloroff talk about the amazing Al Hubbard and called him the Johnny Appleseed of LSD. Well, once you hear Richie Ogunick's story, I think that you're going to see him in a very similar way. And uh, as you listen to this interesting adventure, you may also want to keep in mind what the medicine women and men in the Amazon say about ayahuasca, which is that she will find you when she is ready for you. 
And uh, I think that it's safe to say that the series of coincidences uh, Richie encountered once the spirit of Ibogaine reached out for him, well, they may have been something more than unconnected coincidences. And uh, when seen through this lens, the plot thickens even more. Now, uh, from time to time, you'll hear a little beeping sound, which I didn't realize was being recorded. But what that sound is, is the sound the software makes whenever someone new joins a session. So uh, please think of those little beeps as a sound of somebody opening a door and coming in to join us here in the salon. Also, uh, you'll notice that sometimes the sound seems to drag a little bit, and I apologize for that. One day I'll get a faster computer that can keep up with uh, recording the sound a little better, but until then I think we can live with it. So now please join me, Richie Ogilnick, and a few dozen of our fellow saloners last Monday night as we talked about the healing potential of the Ibogaine plant. Well, well, listen, uh, we've got uh, none of our uh, regulars with the exception of Kevin. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, wait, yeah, and Tim Katz here, a couple others, I guess. Oh, Brooke, yeah. But in any event, uh, oh, here comes another person. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dan. And uh, your uh, microphone is off. You know that. Yeah, yeah. Some some of the yeah. people uh, will... will uh, voluntarily uh uh oh, okay. and and you'll see i'll do this from time to time if i have to cough or something like that okay and uh and then if i'm going to take a toke i'll do that <laughs> <laughs> okay and uh you know, that might we, be necessary <laughs> i know <laughs> we we've been doing this uh you know it's been kind of a just a real casual thing like a real salon but mm-hmm. uh De- depending on you know you know how the thing goes and if it has a good flow and all, right. uh, it doesn't take too much editing. I can can edit the audio from this and uh, put it out in a podcast. And and since uh, we've we've had you know practically nothing ever in the salon about Iboga, yeah, uh, this yeah, is so great, you'll see. Yeah, this is yeah, a, a great uh, opportunity for us. And see, I've I've uh, I've always put off uh, interviewing people. Because I don't think I'm very good at it, you know. I, I get so nervous thinking I've got to come up with another question. Oh, yeah, and, you know, it's just you don't. I, I know it's just me, you know. I, you know, it's a, yes. a confidence thing. And so, but here I found we've got all of these great people here, uh-huh. uh, and and so uh, the questions actually become more relevant to uh-huh. the wider audience than just to me. Okay. And so, so uh, I'm going to keep. Uh, Comfortable with into the salon here. Okay, so I see that there's a uh, a phone icon. That's somebody that's dialed in by the phone. You know, we we and I encourage people to come in and lurk if they'd like to. Uh, uh, You know, I I I've often been a lurker in my life in various forums and stuff. Then there's uh, a name. It says penguin. But it doesn't have a number or an icon. Yeah, you you can. You can put anything in there that you want. You know, you can uh, put in anything in there that you want. And, and you know, that, that uh, people call in on the phone. I encourage lurkers. And, and uh, sure, they, they may be uh, <laughs> DEA agents, but I, I could, couldn't imagine them having uh, nothing better to do than this. And so nothing's talking here about buying or selling or stuff like that. What we're interested in is, is the, uh, you know, the philosophy and psychology and, Everything okay. surrounding all of these experiences that uh, uh, 
most of us have have had. I I you know I've been doing this a lot for fourteen years now, and uh, all all together, uh, you know, there there's been uh, I'd say maybe twenty percent of the people that have corresponded with me have never tried psychedelics, and and are probably are never going to. They're you know leery of them. But there, no pun intended. If you're thinking about the good doctor there, <laughs> but uh, I and I, and I have to tell you this, uh, Richie, that I I I am sort of a lighthearted guy, and so I'll try not to make too many uh, corny jokes tonight. But uh, we we've got a a good little crowd here tonight, and so uh, uh, as I I said a few minutes ago, uh, we've we've never really done anything about Evogain. Uh, I've I've only come in in contact uh, indirectly uh, through uh, Giorgio Samarini, uh, who uh, made uh, uh, appearances at Palenque, and then a couple of the people that ran clinics, uh, one up in uh, Vancouver and, and one down mm-hmm. here in uh, Tijuana in Southern California, Tijuana area. But uh, you know, basically, I think what I'd like to do is just to you know. Start out by saying, "Hey, tell us a little bit about yourself and and uh, how you you got on this path, and then uh, then lead us into uh, the the plant itself." If okay, you know, if you sure, can. sure, I could do that. Okay. Um, well, um, actually, what happened was, um, oh, there's a mushroom, a mushroom. I'm staring at at the moment. Um, okay. I guess I have to, oh, there you, another person. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> well, uh, R- Richie, I'll tell you what, if you go up to the very top of your, your thing, uh-huh, you I go see. to either speaker view or gallery view. If you go to gallery view, you'll see us all. Ah, all right. There you go. So let, let's get started. I don't want to bore people. So you, I'm sure you won't. Ask anything you like. Well, well, let's just start with, with uh, you know, it, Ibogaine is not an easy substance to come into contact with. Uh, how, how, did you, did, did, how did you start on all this path? Yeah. You've been doing this okay. a long time. Well, I was, yeah, uh, back in 1989, um, I received a call from a friend of mine who I met uh, on the streets of New York as I sold my, uh, my crafted rings. And um, he was selling his wife's earrings. He was an ex-engineer uh, troubleshooter for international communications companies. He used to go Europe for five weeks and rewrite a 300-page manual to help save a half a million dollars a day. And it was a very high-pressure job. He quit it. And I saw him on the streets of New York as I sold my rings. I was a craftsperson. crafting crafting for 21 years. And we kept him to the privy of the latest um, uh, modalities. And he called me one day and he said, did you ever hear of Ibogaine? And I said, no. And he's, he was interested because he was an alcoholic, pretty severe um, struggle with alcohol. And he was interested because he heard of a couple of naturopathic physicians, friends of his, who witnessed a few sessions in hotel rooms in the Netherlands that were going for like a ridiculous amount of money, like fifteen to $18,000. Whoa. And, and I, I, you know, didn't quite understand what was going on. I had never heard about Ibogaine. 
So I walked to the Herbarium Library at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where I am now, um, and I came across a one-page article um, about a little corporation called NDA, uh, uh, created by a Howard Lotsoff. And I called Howard, and he sent me a packet, this was before computers, of uh, a nice thick packet of information. And in the packet, right, um, subjective experiences of people that had done Ibogaine for addiction interruption. And it was astounding to me because what I read was, you know, 36 hours after they ingested Ibogaine, irrespective of whether they were doing a bundle of heroin a day or 300 milligrams of Oxycontin, whatever they were doing, um, it completely eliminated the symptoms of withdrawal and it brought them to a, a, a psychoactive experience where they deeply, I mean, very deeply over a 36-hour period reflected upon um, why they got into the addiction process in the first place. And I was so, I was so mesmerized. I didn't understand why a plant medicine would cost so much money and be so unavailable to the West, the people in the West. So um, it took me a couple of years to fly to, to Cameroon. Um, so I, I, uh, I went to Cameroon and I didn't... How, how, how did you make your connection? How did you know Cameroon was where you wanted to go? I, I knew that the plant grew in West Central Africa. Um, it was Gabon, Cameroon, Republic of Congo, and a couple of other countries. And the easiest country to deal with was Cameroon, because in Gabon, it was already very difficult to bring Iboga out of the country. And I didn't want to go to the Republic of Congo, because it was really, really dangerous. So I heard that in southern Cameroon, I could perhaps go to the, uh, to, to the pygmies there who grew it, and I can see if they wanted, to, wanted me to be the harborer of Ibogaine to the world. I figured, you know, I'd, I'd get a, a sleeping bag and a mosquito net, and I would go to the pygmies, and they would look around me and through me and decide if, if they trusted me and if they wanted me to, to share Ibogaine with the world. No, was, Richie, Richie, let me let me let, let me interrupt for a second now. First of all, how old were you at this time? Well, I had just turned forty. Okay, and had you ever done anything like this before? Uh, yes, yes, I have in in one way, shape, and form. Um, I was born in forty nine. Um, always, you know, and so nineteen sixty seven was ground zero in in Haight Ashbury. Um, at the time. So, yeah, and my college days, I was, you know, there were guidance counselors that were running after me with Martin Buber in their hand, and I was trying to turn the whole body around to LSD. I, 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 I guess, you know, I, I, had any, I, I guess I sort of assumed that, you know, what I was getting at is, is uh, anthropological work, you know, going into a, a, another country and native tribes and and research, had you ever, any preparation for that? 
Uh, no, absolutely not. No, in fact, uh, I think I must have gone to a backyard three times with a phone in my hand. I had never camped out. Um, I mean, he got me. I'm this, you know, little Jewish guy from the Bronx on the on his way to to check out the pygmies to see if you know they would want me to be the person that shared iboga with the world. I was very naive, and my intention was to pick up you know, 40,000 doses for three cents each, go to Needle Park in Europe, call CNN, one quarter of the people would show up for their free needles a week later. And that, you know, that would basically be the end of my messianic complex. Um, but it didn't work out that way. Um, well, I, I ended up in, in Cameroon and I didn't know where to go. So the first place I went was a university. There was thousands of kids walking around this university with glass on the streets with there wasn't one one kid that was carrying a book and I spoke to a few professors and they shared with me that they hadn't been paid for four months and I just wanted to speak with someone that may be able to help me so I walked up to a um, an organic chemistry department's door and I knocked on the door and there was a couple of guys playing cards and I asked them, do you know anything about Ibogaine? And they said, I think someone can help you if you come back tomorrow. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I went to my, my bed and breakfast out of town and I came back the next day and I knocked on the door and a 300 pound, six foot five guy answered the, the door and he said, he said, you're looking for Ibogaine? Where did you come from? The Bronx? <laughs> God will strike me down if I don't work with you. Because I'm probably the only chemist on the continent of Africa that has spent the last year and a half perfecting the extraction process to extract Ibogaine from Abernathy Iboga. And he practically carries me to... Um, <laughs> to a 150-year-old wooden chest, and he takes out a vial of 13 grams of, said, 13 grams of Ibogaine hydrochloride. Well, what, what was his background? I mean, where, what, what was his he, nationality? He, he was a Cameroon. Uh, he spoke English fluently. Um, half the country spoke French, and half the country spoke English. And, um, and um, he had indeed perfected the extraction process and he had a, a very pure white powdered pure ibogaine hydrochloride um, and um, he wanted to share it with me so I said well how, how much are you going to charge me he said well about a thousand dollars a gram and I said well I have four thousand dollars in my pocket he said here's the 13 grams come back, come back and, and, and pay me what you owe me, and then I'll make more in the interim. So um, I did. Uh, I, I received the 13 grams from him. And, I mean, this transpired over a series of so many synchronistic events. And one of them, for example, one of many that brought me to his door in the first place was that when I went back to the West carrying the 13 grams of, of Ibogaine in the heel of my shoe, 
I, you know, I really didn't know the protocols to work with Ibogaine psychotherapeutically or spiritually. Um, we had some idea as to how to work with it um, addiction interruption-wise because we had some information from Howard, which we can get into later if you like. Um, but the day that I came back from Africa literally was the day that a 66-year-old client of a, a dear friend of mine, a therapist, um, dropped this uh, chapter from an out-of-print book called The Healing Journey by Claudio Naranjo, the Chilean therapist, in her lap. And the title of the, the chapter was I Began Fantasy and Reality. And um, it documented about 40 lower-dose psychospiritual and therapeutic sessions with Ibogaine. And this 66-year-old gentleman had a facial tick, and he was wondering if his, if his therapist, my friend, knew anything about Ibogaine. And, and keep in mind, my friend and a couple of family members were the only people that knew I was coming back with Ibogaine that day. But this is just an example of how um, this few-week period um, just transpired in a very, very interesting way. Now, now you, had, you had had no personal experience with it, and you're still willing to spend that much money to, to buy some of it? Absolutely. <laughs> wow. Absolutely. Because I read those transcriptions, and it was a done deal as soon as I read those transcriptions. They were unbelievable how beautiful an experience people had with no symptoms of withdrawal, plus a metabolite that fills up certain receptor sites in the biochemistry, the opioid, alcohol, nicotine receptor sites that eliminated a significant amount of the craving. Now, of course, after months and years, and it was, it was about the time when I came back from Africa, it was actually 13 days later that River Phoenix, the young actor overdosed in front of a, an L.A., club and given that he was brought up and raised in Gainesville, Florida, where I where I lived, um, his, his dear friend came to me for an Ibogaine treatment. And and that was the beginning of my turning over from making my jewelry to, to moving on um, and doing the Ibogaine work. And then very shortly thereafter, literally weeks thereafter, a dear friend of mine published an article, um, and this was 1993, in Magical Blend magazine, 65,000 people. Um, it was a, you know, a new age magazine located in California. And it was years that I worked through referrals from people that initially sent letters and postcards People were coming from Australia, from all over the world, mostly from the United States and Canada, just to do a psycho-spiritual session with me underground in Florida. Now, now how, how did that word all spread, you know? That, that... Uh, well, the, the, uh, the article uh, was really the beginning. Um, it, it really reached a lot of people that were very, very interested. And then the addicts began to come. Um, but first, there was a few of us, mostly there were therapists, and we would surround ourselves with, with a couple of therapists, and we began to explore 
the different dose ranges um, through the chapter from Claudio Naranjo's book, The Healing, the, the Ibogaine Fantasy and Reality chapter. And we began to start with, you know, five and a half milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And we moved up to six and a half. And over a period of a few months, we then began to experiment with a higher dose. And at that point, we began to recognize that there was a certain amount of time during the session that people were analogical and there was no directive therapy that could be had because they were moving into the, the spiritual experience and there was no capacity to have a directive therapeutic session. So then we began to explore the psychotherapy, the psychospiritual protocols and, um, you know, and then, and then people were coming and I was training ex addicts and, and a few doctors and paraclinicians to do the work. And they opened up centers in different parts of the world. And now I began is in about 30 countries. It was probably a couple of hundred active, um, I began, uh, providers in the world. So, so all of this, this, uh, therapy is really, uh, recently developed here in the West. It isn't necessarily a therapy that's been done in West Africa. Uh, the, these psychospiritual rite of passage and initiatory experiences have been happening both in a, a further Western part of Africa <clears throat> with Iboga and the Pygmies brought it to West Central Africa. That is a further Eastern part. And then they brought it 300 years ago to West Central Africa, but yes, it, it hasn't been available very, very long in um, in the West. And and, and uh, can you you said that a little earlier that uh, I think uh, uh, sometimes this is like a thirty six hour experience. Can you can you take us? Let's let's say uh, I, I was uh, having a lot of difficulty with alcohol, and I. I, you know, because I have talked to people, I guess, with heroin addictions. I know that uh, have gone through a bogo. But let's take let's take an alcoholic. What what would be the protocol that you would uh, uh, deal with an alcoholic? Uh, right. Well, there's many different um, models, and they're, they're you know it's from the sh- shaman model to the Western medical model to all the models in between and. And, you know, different providers align themselves to a particular model that they're really attracted to, whether it's an underground model or whether it's, you know, a couple of doctors and a couple of nurses and, a, you know, an eight-room center located in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on the model. Um, but basically, when it comes to alcohol specifically, um, a person would need to not be, uh, not drink, any alcohol for seven to 10 days to make absolutely sure that they're not going to go through any, any seizures during the Ibogaine experience um, from alcohol. Right. Um, and so if they're morning drinkers and they're severe, you know, alcoholic, then they have to go through the, the three to four day detox, um, which I witnessed people go through before I conducted treatments with them. Um, and, and then they would, um, you know, settle in their room and, you know, meet a few people and very possibly after, of course, receiving 
an EKG and a liver panel to make sure that their liver is, you know, eligible to do Ibogaine and their heart, most importantly, is available to do Ibogaine. Um, that, um, that they then, um, they could begin the session the next day. And it's basically a three-stage session. Um, it's different from any other psychoactive. You really think to be the, the granddaddy of psychoactives because after a couple of days of having this deep experience, often that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. It's almost like the, the unfolding of a new language. And sometimes people have called me eight to ten months later and they finally say to me, all of the intentions that I came into the session with have finally been understood, resolved, and maybe, just maybe, I'll do it again six months or a year from now. But it's, it's something that people do more often than at the most a few times in a lifetime. Um, but do you want me to go back and go through a more specific step-by-step? -step? Um, yeah, uh, before I do that, uh, okay. your, your, uh, your feed cut out just a little bit here, so we, oh. we may have to... Uh, uh, turn, you may have to turn your video off, but uh, uh, don't do okay. it just yet. But uh, okay. let me let me ask uh, the rest of our, our people here if uh, somebody else has some questions, some ways they'd like to go. And and I I think you have to maybe hold up your hand, or you can unmute yourself. I'm not quite sure. Uh, there'd been some feedback, so I muted some of the uh, microphones. But uh, I see David, you've unmuted yourself. Do you have a question? Yeah, I had a question. Um... Uh, not sure if you answered this directly, Richie, but um, I was just curious um, about your first experience with Ibogaine yourself. Mm -hmm. Sure. How did that go? Like your uh, subjective experience of... Yeah, yeah. It was um, a, a smaller dose, and it was, again, with a couple of therapists, and my intention was to um, work through to... To, to take a, a deeper look at my relationship with, with mother. And, um, and uh, it, was, it was really meaningful because there were astoundingly clear pictorial assaults, uh, like, uh, which, which brought me back to reliving, but being aware of living, not merging with the with the um, pictorials, but being, you know, there's a witness component and you're just kind of like watching and, and witnessing. Um, and specifically, one of the, the snippets that took place during that particular experience was that I, I noted that it wasn't since I was eight years old at the time that I had thrown up, that I've always had this incredible aversion to throwing up. And this is going back already, like 25 years. Um, and I got in touch with when I got sick, when I was seven or eight years old, and I was running to the bathroom because I had to throw up really badly. And I was throwing up in, in the hallway on the way to the bathroom. And when I was throwing up in the bathroom, my mom, being the, the, the clean freak that she was, took my neck and she said, you throw up here. 
she was like, you know, so off her, you know, off her mark because I was making a mess of the whole place. And that was the last time I threw up. And it was like this whole emotional, you know, correlation to my mom being so angry at me, you know. So at that, at that moment, I realized that during the Ibogaine session, I realized, oh, okay. So now I actually have a choice. Now I could throw up. I chose not to, <laughs> but but I could have, and it would have been okay. So that's just a, just an example of you know part of the session um, at that directive therapeutic dose of, of five and a half milligrams per kilogram of body weight of ibogaine hydrochloride. And and how do, how long does that experience last? Um, well, the flood doses now, which are the psychospiritual doses, which run more in the from six and a half to twelve milligrams per kilogram. The first stage is your basic, you know, feels like you're going two hundred miles an hour off of a cliff, but living to talk about it stage that goes on for four to six hours. But then you've got the second stage, which is a a 30 to 40 hour, very deep, self-reflective experience, which is more, um, um, more linear than the first stage, which is completely non-linear. But the second stage, you're basically under the covers with your eyes closed in a waking dream state for about 30 to 40 hours. Um, and then the third stage is basically reintegrating back into um, you know, some semblance of, of normalcy. Um, so it's really a two-day, couple-of-day process. And I, I spend the good three or four days with people on a one-to-one situation, but I'll spend as much time, I'll spend days and days with a person, as much time as is necessary, as that person feels. Because sometimes it's really cool <clears throat> to, like, help the person remain deconstructed and remain in a condition of not knowing and, and be still deeply in a sense of presence. Because what happens during Ibogaine is that a whole bunch of extraneous file cabinets are thrown out of the system. Like there's one therapist that told me the thing that she got out of Ibogaine the most is that about 60 or 70% of her the thoughts that she thinks per hour. It's so much less now, and she's able to empathize and be present so much more deeply with her clients uh, because she feels like a lot is discarded, both energetically and through a series of hours and hours of archetypal vignettes and pictorial gestalts, um, but also energetically, not necessarily consciously as well. So it's both that divest is divest a person of a lot of extraneous material and you're left with such a deeper sense of quietude and presence that potentially can remain. And so I, I love to spend an extra few days with a person to help them remain deconstructed. It's as if you've got a rubber band ball, you know, made of like a thousand rubber bands and during the process of Ibogaine, 
all of the rubber bands just relax and you see all the interconnecting threads that define this false sense of self. And so you see it all and you're energetically appreciating it all and you are detached from it and you're witnessing that. And so there's an ability to discard a lot of that extraneous false definition. And a person is just left, like, you know, much closer to their, to their true nature, if you put it that way. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful thing to remain that way and not to reconfigure out of fear, out of not being accustomed to living in that condition of not knowing, but just to, to abide in it and to kind of zipped up, zip up the sleeping bag metaphorically and just live in that, that simple condition of not knowing and let it integrate instead of you know, reconfiguring the way a lot of people reconfigure after it's like experience. But the cool thing about Ibogaine is the metabolite that pulls up certain receptors. And the fact that people aren't talking about an experience that they had last night, they're reflecting upon their new found um, perception. And that can go on for, for weeks and months. That's, you know, that's what I'm more interested in than the actual lights and cameras, the actual experience itself. I'm much more interested in the and uh, the after, you, you know, Richie, that that when you when when you look at it from a real high level, uh, a lot of what you're you're saying reminds me of my own ayahuasca experiences, but but not on the intense level that you're you're talking about here. And that uh, you know, for ayahuasca, you know, it's four to six hours of the real intense experience. Mm-hmm. Then you sleep. We get together and have a. Uh, communal breakfast and then uh, discuss things for, you know, four or five hours afterwards. But it, you know, what you're talking about is, is uh, that, that part where I'm talking about, we're kind of coming down and discussing among ourselves. That's where you're beginning your 30 hour mm-hmm. intensive. You're the covers with your eyes closed. And yeah. The next day you're, you're still in process. Um, yeah. My, my question. Granddaddy. I was the, is the, is the grandma or the mother, and Ibogaine is the grand. And some Ibogaine providers are now doing, sharing ayahuasca with people uh, a few weeks after they do Ibogaine because ayahuasca tends to open up the heart. Ibogaine tends to quiet the mind. So it's, it's a nice integrative experience for some people. Yeah, I, you know, because, I, you know, I've had ayahuasca experiences where six or eight months later, you know, I've had aha moments and things like this. And, and uh, but the, the, uh, the, the ambiance carries with you for a few days, but nothing on the intensity of what you're talking about here. And uh, my, uh, my question is during, let's say, like 12 hours into it, uh, 20 hours into it, do you still, is it, is it just a, a, a mental situation or do you still yeah. physically feel high as well? Uh, well, the thing with Ibogaine is, is that it's, it's, it's considered an omophoric. It's, it's not really even considered a hallucinogen because when you open your eyes during the process, everything basically looks quite normal. And then when you close your eyes, the whole experience winds back up 
So it, it's really a, a very deep, deep self-reflective experience, um, but it's not a hallucinogen per se. Mm-hmm. Now, do, do you start out like with an ayahuasca? A lot of times we start out with an intention, and of course that's uh-huh. quickly sure. abandoned and taken to other places. Do you do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to encourage people at least 10 days before they're going to do a psychotherapeutic or a spiritual session to uh, pick two intentions, things they want to explore and work through. If they have a dozen, see if they can simplify and see the connecting threads between a dozen and them and bring it down to two mm-hmm. and, uh, and then go into the experience with those intentions in mind. When it comes to an addiction interruption treatment, um, that's not necessary because the Ibogaine is going to go to the outer core of the personality and it's going to treat the addiction. Um, it's going to address the addiction and all its energy. It's going to go to eliminating the symptoms of withdrawal, eliminating the craving. There could be some insights, but it's not necessary to work with intention when somebody's coming off of heroin. It's too much to ask. Yeah, you know that that I did. Uh, I have had uh, several acquaintances who who were on heroin, and they were, they were really not even close acquaintances, but people I knew. And uh, but they went to the Ibogaine clinic that was uh, open in Tijuana at one time, mm-hmm. and they all had like marvelous uh, recoveries. That uh, you know, I'm talking several years later, they were still uh, you know heroin yeah, free. There is truly. A miracle component to ibogaine. It's it's not a cure. Only the person is right. cure, but it has a miracle component. By I mean, I mean overnight karmic retribution. Literally, if not gently bringing a person, it's throwing a person into a pre-addictive state so that they have choice again. But they're still carrying at least. Some, if not a lot of the baggage that brought them to the addictive process in the first place. And so the I beginning is the beginning of a process. Um, as I was on the phone with people during these last 25 years, um, at, about, at about the 10th year, <clears throat> after being on the phone you know, literally six days a week for hours a day with you know, wives and, and uh, girlfriends mostly and uh, sisters and parents and ex and addicts as well, I noticed that addiction most often has to do with abandonment from the same-sex parent. About 60% of the people that have called me have some kind of an emotional and or physical break with the same-sex parent. Um, and then, you know, maybe 20% have an abandonment issue with the opposite sex parent. And then there's another 15% that are just the personality type in this world that are addicted to experience and they'll do anything once. So once they end up doing heroin or jumping out of a plane, they become addicted to that experience. Um, But the readout was primarily addiction has to do with abandonment from the same-sex parent and a smaller percentage from the opposite-sex parents. So it's so, so important for addicts to have the courage. And they usually receive that courage at least from the Ibogaine experience 
They come out of Ibogaine realizing that they have to do something different because most of them have already, you know, gone through cold turkey. They've gone through rehabs. They've relapsed. And then they come to Ibogaine. And they realize that I have to do something different. I have to have the courage to sit across from a same-sex therapist that I really admire and respect because then they're not in control. Addicts tend to be a lot more sensitive and a lot more intelligent than the average therapist. So it's really easy for them to manipulate, you know, in the name of therapy, really not doing any work at all because they feel in control of the relationship. But if they really admire and respect the therapist, then all bets are off. They're no longer in control. And that's when the healing happens. So I'm just talking specifically with therapy, with addicts now in terms of what's absolutely essential so that they don't relapse after Ibogaine. What happens is they feel so good after Ibogaine. Most of the people feel like I licked it. I got the world by the balls again, you know? And if they're in their twenties and thirties, invariably they're going to relapse. If they're in their forties and fifties, they already have, you know, a couple of kids that are on their way to the college and have a mortgage and a, you know, a support system and a job that they like. Very often after Ibogaine for an addict, if they're in their 40s and 50s, they stay clean. But not if they're, if they're in their 20s and 30s. That's when the work begins, after the Ibogaine, for people that are younger. You know, something that, that just kind of uh, popped into my head here, I was thinking how back in, in the 1950s, uh, up in Canada in particular, uh, they were doing a lot of uh, uh, work with alcoholics and LSD and having some really good results. And uh, this mm-hmm. has happened uh, before, but, uh, of course, LSD became a recreational drug. And uh, uh, with Ibogaine, though, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's really making the headlines uh, almost exclusively, almost as a therapy, and it's never really hit the recreational yeah. it never it never hit the streets. It's one of the only um, uh, psychoactives on the controlled substance list that was created in 1970. But the first thing that people say when they take Ibogaine is that now I, now I know why it never hit the streets because it's not a recreational experience. Yeah, you know. Very, very uh, intense, arduous, you I, know, potentially I, life-transforming experience i i first encountered it at a, a conference out of the country and and uh it, it was offered to anybody that wanted to be there and it, it was at a point in my life where i was experimenting with everything but when they described that you know well the next three days you won't be part of the conference you're going to be on this trip that only one person out of like 80 of us even did it you know and these are some hardcore psychedelic people so it's it, i don't think you'll ever see it on the streets that's right that's right. We, I, I went up to New York um, 13 years ago, um, and I created the underground for Ibogaine in New York City. Um, it's beyond the statue of limitations, so I'm perfectly comfortable talking about it. Um, and we initially were handing out um, brochures and flyers in front of methadone clinics in Harlem, in Harlem, in New York. Um, and we did about 30 or 40 sessions, and I invited half a dozen people from all over the country to um, 
to be trained to work with Ibogaine and then go back to their respective cities so that they can share it with, you know, their, their people. And, uh, yeah, it was really, it was really a beautiful few months. And, and, uh, and after that, 400 people in New York city received sessions in their apartments, um, over a period of several months, uh, probably a couple of years, actually. Yeah. Hey, Richie, I got a question for you. Um, Kevin. Yeah. Hey, how's it going, Richie? Okay. Uh, so is, is everybody um, clinics underground working with the Iboga or Ibogaine hydrochloride, or are some people using just a plant-based Iboga, and is there a difference between the experience? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't work. Yeah, I wouldn't work um, specifically with you know ninety six and a half percent pure ibogaine hydrochloride if I was doing a therapeutic or a psycho spiritual session. <clears throat> but when it comes to the addiction interruption, I'll only work with a higher amount of ibogaine from eighty five percent to ninety six ninety seven percent. The psycho spiritual you can work with iboga which is the root bark shavings, which is about 7 to 11% Ibogaine per you know, gram or whatever, um, to uh, total alkaloid um, extractions, which run about 35% Ibogaine, but then there's a representation of all the other alkaloids located in the plant. So I like the synergy between the alkaloids and, and, and sharing as full a plant-based, you know, medicine as possible for the psycho-spiritual. But when it comes to the addiction, just the Ibogaine is like, is where it's at for a lot of reasons, both um, physically and to interrupt the symptoms of withdrawal. Gosh, thank you. Sure. Hey, I got a question. Um, So do we, do we know how um, Ibogaine or Iboga like actually heals the physical body? Like, does it heal the brain or the brain systems in some way or the nervous system? Yeah, if there's one thing that I didn't uh, teach myself during these last 25 years, it's the pharmacology of Ibogaine. I, I, I left that for people that have a brain <laughs> to do that. Um, but there is um, a resetting, a rewiring of the biochemistry to a pre-addictive state. But there's also a, um, it seems to be like a, you know, there's more synchronicity between the left and the right hemispheres. Um, I really have focused so much on training people and doing sessions that I, I really can't answer that fully, but I know people that can. So if, you know, if you're interested, I can get you in touch with someone that can share more of the technical pharmacological aspects of how it works. If you have any other questions, though. I have a question. Go ahead, bro. Um, sorry that my uh, face isn't showing. I, I can't oh, seem to get the my video to work. No problem. No problem. Um, so I, I have actually kind of two questions. One is, you know, what, how is it used in Africa? Or is there any, you know, do you know anything about how yeah. the tradition of how it was used? Yeah. Like, yeah, you, question is, yeah you can look up, uh, look up Weedy. B-W-I-T-I is the name of the tribe that use it as their rite of passage initiatory tool 
like, like for example, they'll take it um, and there's certain rituals that they adhere to. Um, you know, one guy took some iboga, ran into the forest and dug up a dowry under a tree that was buried there uh, by a family member 150 years ago. Wow. Because he was told by his ancestors or by an ancestor that you know, that's where it was located. Um, there are friends of mine that have gone to West Central Africa, to Gabon, where about 10% of the population are Buddhists and, um, uh, and have been initiated by the Buddhists. And, um, you know, they, they brought some of the, the rituals back. Um, I personally have never been attracted to that way of going. I, I find it like just so transforming to utilize the extraction from the root bark shavings and to just, you know, quietly, you know, go under the covers with eyes closed and to just do it in a very comfortable Western model. Because when you do it with the weedy, they give you the iboga root and you've got to ingest, ingest spoonfuls and spoonfuls and invariably you're going to throw up a lot. So you have to ingest more. And it's a three-day, three-night process of purging and, you know, ingesting this absolutely horrible tasting stuff. And, you know, they've got um, their way of doing things for hundreds of years. Um, some people say that Iboga was uh, founded close to the Rift Valley where human evolution began. And it, it, it helped catapult, you know, us into a condition of, of self-awareness um, thousands of years ago. And then it was brought from the eastern part of Africa to West Central Africa. You know, we don't know. Um, I remember Ter Terence McKenna speaking about mushrooms in a similar way. It does seem rather miraculous that it can, can do all these things, that it can address both chemically and, you know, yeah. psycho-spiritually all of these issues in, in a human being. Do you have some way that you explain that to yourself? Um, yeah, it just enables people to go so deep, deep, deep inside themselves but that's where the healing takes place. Um, and, it, and some people have said it's like 10 years of therapy rolled into a couple of days. Um, uh, it's, it's, it, has its, it's, it has its miracle component. It's, it's very profound. Um, but to me, intention is everything. And, you know, you could do Ibogaine a half a dozen times and still be an asshole. You know, so it's not, it's never the method. It's always the person. And actually, if a person's intention is, is so pure, they don't need a method. They could be walking across the street chewing a piece of gum and, and they'll be transformed. So that's, you know, that's another way of, of looking at it. But there are some methods in the world from, you know, deep tissue, from rolfing to, Polytropic breath work to ibogaine. You know, there are some very, very powerful methodologies that I that I do really respect. Now, Richie, have yeah. have you have you uh, has any ayahuasca experiences? Personally, no. 
I haven't. Because I, I was wondering how, you know, basically what what uh, you describe is like uh, a three-day ayahuasca experience, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, what I'm wondering is because you said that, that the uh, – the first, uh, what, four to six hours are the really, you know, uh, kind of a, a, a exciting part. Does, oh, no, no, the, no, it's, it's 40 to 50 hours. Yeah, but, I mean, it, does, it, does it change? Does it vary the intensity of the experience? Oh, yeah, yeah, the first four hours are um, just, you know, completely, you know, analogical. Um, the pictorials and the archetypal vignettes are coming through so so fast i mean one woman single space 34 pages documenting 16 and a half hours of visions but then on the other hand another woman that i did a session with experienced absolutely no epiphanies no insights and yet she went into a state of unity consciousness for 10 and a half months she went back home after being frustrated because she didn't have the visuals that she wanted to have um, uh, with Ibogaine. And then, then and there, I began to realize for myself, because I wanted, I was so attached for people to receive what they wanted. And then I began to realize, wow, people are receiving exactly what they need because she had experienced in her life everything that she ever wanted she successfully received until I began didn't give her what she wanted. And as a result of that, she accessed a level of frustration within herself that enabled her to kick into a place where she was, she was witnessing her sleep um, for 10 and a half months. She was really in a, in a very deep state of, of awakening. Um, And, and I owe it to, that I began gave her what she needed, not what she wanted. Um, so <laughs> there's no prescriptions to truth. You know, there, there's no, it's like there's a lot of even I became providers that are very attached to people having these, you know, lights and cameras, these really deep experiences. Sure. And I, I'm much more interested in the effect because energetically you can still get so much out of it, even though you're not having like some deep, deep uh, epiphanies. Yeah, you know, I've I've talked to to dozens of people who have had ibogaine experiences, and I've I've never talked to anyone who's uh, been disappointed. I've I've talked to some who thought, well, maybe I didn't get as much as I should have or could have or whatever, and that's true of a lot of us in a lot of experiences. But uh, uh, circling back to another question I have about it that uh, just uh, I'm curious about. Because uh, I I try to uh, you know be kind of a down to earth kind of guy, and yet when I do ayahuasca, I have to admit that there's a a voice, a, a feminine voice that comes out of uh, you know it's it's a spirit of ayahuasca, Lady Ayahuasca, I think of it as. Uh, is is there a similar spirit in in Ibogaine? Yeah, there's a there's a granddaddy. Ah, yeah, there's a yeah, he's. Also there, yeah, for a lot of people, yeah, without having read about it or anything beforehand, a lot of people experience um, him, his presence. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's also, as I, as I would imagine, ayahuasca can be just 
absolutely profound for post-traumatic stress. Um, just absolutely wonderful for post, post-traumatic stress. And in really small, low doses, it's turning around symptoms of Parkinson's. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, really radically. So we're really interested in doing more research, um, you know, concerning Parkinson's. You know, our hands are basically tied behind our backs. So all of this research is so slow go because it's been on the controlled substance list. Is, is, there, is there any uh, uh, big institution doing research on Ibogaine right now? There's a lot of institutions that are doing research. Yeah, a lot. Not for the Parkinson's yet. But, um, but yeah, more and more research is being done. Well, that's encouraging because, you know, like, like with LSD and psilocybin and ayahuasca, you know, Ibogaine is another one of these, uh, these plant medicines that I think humans yeah. have been uh, accessing for millennia and then somehow we got them suppressed and it's time to uh, get back. And, and I think, you know, uh, even uh, I know there's been a lot of criticism of, of uh, some of the work that MAPS is doing, but if you listen to uh, the recent talk that Rick uh, Doblin gave at Blanque Norte in Burning Man, uh, he's still encouraging the the private use of these medicines and, mm-hmm. and not keeping it just in the laboratory and just mm-hmm. with the doctors, because that's where all of the leading edge stuff comes mm-hmm. out of it anyhow. Yeah. And I, I think it is important to understand the, uh, the, yeah. the chemical natures, but I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, the in-house shamans are important as well. Yes. And um, yeah, so I'm interested and I'm, I'm participating in that uh, venue. Well, obviously, you've been participating for, for the the last part of your adult life. You yeah. know, it's uh, well, actually I took a I took a few years off until recently. Um, four years ago, I went to Vietnam because my intention when I went to Africa initially was to reach a lot of people, a lot of addicts. I always wanted to to reach a lot of people with a home remedy that they can do safely, legally, inexpensively, without. Um, uh, professional care. And so four years ago, I walked away from Ibogaine for the first time in 21 years. And I went to, um, I went to Vietnam. I went to a place where um, opium grows. And invariably, wherever opium grows in the world, there's going to be um, medicine women and men that go into the forests there and find active ingredients in herbs that ameliorate the symptoms of withdrawal because the families that grow opium, the elderly people in the family are allowed to stay addicted to opium in between harvests. But the younger people, because there's not enough opium, um, end up going through withdrawal. So for a thousand years, there's been active ingredients, plant plants that have ameliorated the symptoms of withdrawal. So I brought back um, a lot of information and I connected with a a Chinese herbalist and we created um, a combination of 17 different Western and Chinese herbs that significantly decreases the tolerance to opioids. And and so we can get a person down from like three grams of heroin to 0.2 grams and then it's easier for them to jump off completely just for a hundred or two hundred dollars at home, without professional care, without 
you know, a methadone clinic or a Suboxone doctor, doctor looking over their shoulder, but, you know, empowering addicts to, you know, it's like a harm reduction tool to utilize this um, combination of verbs to um, basically do whatever they want in terms of their relationship with their opiate of choice. It also helps eliminate craving for alcohol and, uh, and amphetamine, like uh, methamphetamine. So I spent a few years doing that, um, and I was very quickly shut down by the FDA. Um, but if anybody's interested, they can just call me. We can discuss. Yeah, yeah, somebody else jump in. Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead. Yeah, Richie, I apologize. I missed that. What What was it that the FDA quickly uh, shut down? That uh, yeah, they sent me. A, well, they sent they didn't. They sent me a four and a half page warning letter, uh, letting me know that I was, and basically it was four and a half pages, comprised of a lot of the testimonials that people um, sent me that I posted on my Facebook page and and my website um, that I had, which I, I closed down. But they were basically saying that I was being a, a, a danger because I was deterring people away from the tried and true true methods of Suboxone and methadone. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I shut down before they shut me down. I've got a question. So, Go ahead, Matthew. Um, like uh, there are some plants in the Tabernathy genus in uh, South America, and they're added to ayahuasca brews. Um, are you familiar with uh, any um, iboga use um, or like ibogaine use in South America or places outside of Africa? Um, uh, sure. Well, I, I yeah, I, I helped um, kind of you know introduce and train people that are working with ibogaine in South America and Brazil. Um, and well, Central America. Um, I don't think it's located anywhere in South America except uh, Brazil. But I heard of a plant that has ibogaine located in it on the border of Ecuador and I think maybe Brazil. Um, and so that you know that eventually could be another source for ibogaine, you know, in terms of extracting from that particular plant. Um, the other interesting personal part of the story is that when I was, when I was eight years old and walking to public school, I had this vision of the state of Bahia in, Af in, in Brazil, where the peninsula city of uh, Salvador juts out. If you take a look on the other side of the planet um, in Africa, you see where it's obvious that that, that part of Brazil and West Central Africa were one, one continent. And it's exactly where Iboga grows, West Central Africa. And when I was eight, I had this strong feeling that that part of Brazil was going to be a very important part of my life. And I've gone to that part of Brazil many times, myself alone and with my kids. And a dear friend of mine uh, lives there. And cousins of Iboga grow on her land, um, Tabernathy, Montana, and probably some others as well. Thanks. Sure. Those little little synchronicities are really interesting, aren't they? Oh, yeah. It, it, that, that What you just talked about, the, the continents, uh, how they fit together, you know, that's something that 
all of us as school children had had seen and thought of you know mm-hmm. and and but the the fact that iboga uh maybe uh you know grew right at the place where they split is is kind of fascinating with make uh, yeah. and 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 the state of Bahia is the, on the same parallel um and um and the the state of Bahia in Brazil is the the African state so it is very interesting yeah, yeah. That's when my friend has her posada on the beach and her land, and and uh, it's a beautiful place to grow iboga. There are people growing iboga in in Brazil for many years now. So, so is it is it still mainly grown in in uh, West Africa though? Yes, yes, and also there's some uh, har- there's some farms in Guyana and other parts of Africa, but basically. It grows wild in West Central Africa, and and is it legal there? Uh, it's it's legal in Gabon and Cameroon. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. It's not illegal, except once you start hitting um, Europe, uh-huh. and it's becoming more and more. There's more and more countries that are putting it on the controlled substance list. But I, I know that there was a lot of relaxation, at least in Mexico and Canada. I don't know if that's still the case because there are clinics in both those yes. places. It's still the case in Mexico, uh, but it's no longer the case in Canada. They're, they're starting to restrict it there. Yeah, I heard that clinic close up there. That's too bad. But uh, yeah. uh, it, it is amazing, though, the, the results that have been had. And, and I think that if there are institutions doing research, at least there's uh, – uh, some hope that it won't disappear again. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, since 1999, it's been increasing in interest by about 5 to 10% a year. It's, you know, it never reached any kind of level of critical mass where, like, it becomes, you know, a household word. But over a period of these last almost 20 years now, it's been increasing in interest, whereas 10 years ago, a doctor... Would never, I would never, cons- I would never have experienced a doctor referring ibogaine to a patient, and now it happens quite often. But you know that that brings us to a, a, a great point here because I, I think this is worth uh, podcasting this conversation to get some more uh, information out about it. And so, how where would you suggest people begin? I, uh, your, let's start with your website for sure. And and uh, how if somebody let's say is interested in, in, uh, uh, or has somebody they would like to, uh, help, uh, with an, just have them call me. I'm a, I'm a phone person. I'm, oh, I'm okay. cool. What, so what, what's your, what's your schedule call with me? Just pick up the phone the way we used to remember the way you used to pick up a phone and just make a call. <laughs> I, mean, I, I heard about call. that. <laughs> <laughs> now your website is Iboga with Richie, right? Yeah. Dot com. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I know everyone in the community. And so, you know, if it's an addiction interruption treatment, depending upon a person's ability to pay, where they want to go, the model that they want to utilize, whether it's a medical model or another kind of model, I'll be able to comfortably refer them to someone that I know will take good care of them. And 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 let me ask you this too, because you know, in in uh, in our podcast audience, we have a lot of uh, young people. Uh, if if somebody is uh, you know, say a college student or something, and interested in uh, 
heading into doing research in this direction, would you be happy to talk with them? Of course I would, and I could introduce them to people that they would love to speak to that know a lot more about what they may be interested in in connection with Ibogaine than I can. Good, good, because that's, you know, that's the thing that the Internet has brought to us is that, yeah. you know, we wouldn't be, be hearing about Ibogaine without, without yeah. that, you know, and so uh, more people that we can connect with one another, uh, like Leary said, you know, find the others. And uh, uh, we're, we're, it's amazing how many young people are now uh, actually beginning careers where they're uh, conscientiously looking into studying psychedelic research. Well, I just spoke with someone an hour ago who said that MAPS is actually looking to train hundreds of people to work with MDMA and psilocybin. Um, and, you know, come 2020, 21, um, there's going to be some really interesting openings. The, the, the work that, that uh, particularly the uh, protocols that MAPS has come up with, with the uh, MDMA therapy, uh, relies, uh, it's, it's more heavily involved with the, with the, the therapist, the uh, man, woman, uh, team therapist. And, and the medicine is really a catalyst for the therapy itself. Right. Whereas it seems like with, with Ibogaine that it's the plant is doing the That's work. That's right. It's a very passive oriented facilitation. It's a very one-on-one, in, in a way, arduous facilitation because it goes on for three to four days but it's very passive. You can, some people ask me, should I take a tape recorder with me? I said, well, as long as it's voice activated, because you may say two words and then 12 hours later, you'll <laughs> say another six words. <laughs> so, but that's the kind of experience. It is very, very, very quiet. Well, listen, does anybody, else, anybody else want to jump in here before we wrap it up tonight? Just got a quick question. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, we hear a lot about if it's the effectiveness for heroin addiction. Uh, up in Canada now, we're so deep into the fentanyl, especially in BC here. Yeah. Uh, is the efficacy as as good with the stronger things like fentanyl as it has been with heroin? We usually tend to see if it's possible for people to get off of the fentanyl before they do Ibogaine. Um, even if it takes like doing more of another opiate of choice. Um, the problem these days is that the fentanyl is mixed with the heroin. And so, you know, that's what we do. We just work with what we have. Um, but when a person, you know, like five, 10 years ago, before the fentanyl crisis uh, happened, um, people would be doing fentanyl as uh, a pain management medication. So, and if they were doing like 200 milligrams of Oxycontin along with fentanyl patch, we would ask them to get off of the patch, even if it meant increasing the amount of Oxycontin they were doing, and then the Ibogaine would take care of the, the Oxycontin. The same goes for methadone and Suboxone. There's a couple of steps that need to be taken before a person can do Ibogaine um, coming off of methadone and Suboxone they need to transfer to uh, a short-acting opiate, maybe in combination with Kratom, um, but they need to spend some weeks um, getting off of that long half-life opiate. Good, thanks. Sure. Yeah, and I got a question, Richie. Um, so what do you think the uh, the future of Iboga or Ibogaine is? Mm -hmm. uh, is it going to become less underground? Do you think that 
it'll ever be used in like mainstream hospitals or like you know yeah i mean you know could be someday it's there's, there'll be an ibogaine room in in every va hospital in the country you know in every city um but it's hard you know it's hard to know when that will happen sometimes you know how th- movements take place sometimes they're incremental and incremental and then there's this overnight shift that happens um and uh, and I you know I really don't know where where we're going to land with ibogaine, but there certainly is more and more interest. It hasn't waned waned at all, you know, during the years that I've been involved. Why is uh, ibogaine such a um, I don't know unpleasant experience for many people, like or at least an experience that people don't want to repeat very often? Uh-huh. Um, well, it's like giving birth. It's not unpleasant necessarily. Okay. It's just so life transforming that you really don't have a sense that, that you need to do it very often. And it's literally like, how can you describe what it is to give birth? Mm-hmm. Okay. So like more like a DMT sort of experience, like, you know, so, something that's very pleasant, but you know, something that you don't necessarily, or sometimes very pleasant, but something that you wouldn't necessarily want to repeat uh, in an hour from then. Absolutely. <laughs> right, right. It's something that also also goes on for weeks and months in terms of a transformative process. And so people are still in process for weeks and months, and so they're not even considering doing it again until they're finished and feel a sense of integration, and then they may want to do it again six months or a year down the road. Also, it's been very expensive, um, it costs thousands of dollars, and that's something that I want to bring. I want to bring something new to the situation and, and have it available for much less. Um, and so that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm coming back into the Ibogaine fold, but I want to make it available for people for much, much less than it's been being made available. And I'm also interested in staying with a person for as long as they want me to stay with them. Um, so there's not going to be any time reference or um, a really long condition. That's what I'm looking to, to experiment with now. So it seems like uh, something that would be very effective for someone who may be dealing with an addiction to uh, like compulsive behavior, not so much to a particular substance. Right. Yeah, like um, yeah, code, from codependency to, to bulimia. Um, to gambling, you know, food disorders. Um, and then there's the person that just wants to go deeper into their process and their sense of self and, you know, their definition of God, whatever that might be for them. And so the, the dose range varies accordingly as well. In the, in the native traditions, do they do they have a dose range for various experiences, or just one range that they use? They have one range, <laughs> and so, just as much iboga as you possibly can without throwing up. But that was what I, I kind of thought. So you these crack the head open. <laughs> these, these lower dose uh, for use yeah, for therapy—that's a, a a more modern use of iboga. Yeah. Okay. Very, very much so. And and was this sort of like a trial and error stumbled on, more or less? Yeah, it was just that, you know, from that chapter, 
therapists, friends of mine had something to work with when I, that day, when I came back with Ibogaine. So, you know, know, it's, it's so amazing how these, these medicines are reaching out. For example, you know, I I understand probably like one of the worst things can happen to a human is these cluster headaches. And, uh, it was stumbled upon that, that LSD actually is, is a cure for cluster headaches. And this all became, you know, people started sharing it on the internet and, uh, uh, it wasn't uh, like it was a research project or something. And the same with what you've discovered with uh, Iboga uh, as far as a, a treatment yeah. for uh, all kinds of disorders. And, yeah, uh-huh. good, yeah. I have a question. You, you talk about Africans connecting to their ancestors through yeah. Iboga, and I'm wondering if that ever happens with, um, you know, Westerners, non-Africans, yeah, non uh-huh. non Uh-huh, yes, it does. Other life experiences, um, multidimensional experiences, um, unleashing of childhood, you know, repressed memories. But the thing is, given that Ibogaine is an organic, it's not going to force a person to take a look at things that they're not willing to look at. That's the nature of the symbiotic relationship that organics allow with the individual. Um, Whereas synthetics will sometimes plow through consciousness and basically say, you're going to look at this whether you like it or not, whether you're ready for it or not, because, you know, they don't really have a soul. Listen, all of you people, I really appreciate you all joining in tonight. Uh, Now, next Monday night, I won't be here. Uh, It's Christmas Eve, and and there's all kinds of family dinners and stuff like that that I'd be a real jerk for not going to. But uh, uh, I will be here on New Year's Eve, and I hope none of you show up unless you're on your way out and you can tell us about where you're going because I hope your New Year's <laughs> Eve are more uh, exciting than that. But this will be mine, so I'll be back here for that. And uh, I appreciate you uh, all being here tonight and uh, being part of this little family that's growing. And, uh, uh, you know, until uh, till New Year's Eve, keep the old faith and stay high. Nice meeting you all. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Although I'm not normally a betting man, I'd be willing to bet that during this conversation that we had last week with Richie, that there were a couple of times that you thought of a question that you'd like to have asked him. Well, don't forget that question, because sometime next year, Richie's going to be back with us for another one of our live weekly salons. And if you go to the program notes at psychedelicsalon.com, you'll find a link to Richie's website where you can find his phone number as well. And as I said, the address to his site is easy to remember. It is ibogawithrichie.com. That's I-B-O-G-A-W-I-T-H-R-I-C-H-I-E. ibogawithrichie.com. And uh, as you know now, (laughs) I host these live conversations with uh, any of my supporters on Patreon who'd like to join me each week. It only costs $1 a month to join the conversation or to just simply listen in. And on nights where we don't have a featured guest, well, our conversations cover a really wide range of topics, and I'm sure that you'd find one or two of them quite interesting. And uh, while I do open the salon for my Patreon supporters on Zoom.us every Monday night... Well, since tomorrow is Christmas Eve and there are so many of us having family get-togethers, there won't be a live salon tomorrow night. However, I will open the salon again on New Year's Eve at 6.30 p.m. Pacific Time. 
So if you live outside of the States, well, maybe you can join us as you come home from your parties. <laughs> and uh, if you live here in the U.S., why don't you drop by on your way out? Personally, though, uh, I've always thought of New Year's Eve as too dangerous a time to be out on the highway with all of the drunks driving around. So I'll be here in the salon having a New Year's Eve toke with some of our fellow saloners, and I hope to see you there. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.